when I was up here standing in this place um, several sun- or Wednesdays ago, we talked a little bit about the, our bodies and um, started out with 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church and he says, do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then we went over to several chapters ahead in the same book, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and uh, verses 24 through 27. And this is where the Apostle Paul likens the Christian life to a race. And he said that we're all in the race and we need to run the race in such a way that we may obtain the prize. In order to do that, we must train for the race, and we have to run the race according to the rules. And then he goes on to say that, well, I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air, but I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. And in that, we we talked about the fact that when he says, I pommel my body, the Greek word means to essentially beat your body black and blue. And when it says subdue the body, it means to make the body a slave. So we have this picture of, of the Apostle Paul in two places talking about our body, and he talks about the fact that for some reason or other, We have to subdue our body in order to run the race. And so what I'd like to do tonight is look at why that is. Where did it begin? What's the root? So let's go to the beginning, and we'll take a look at that. So get your Bibles out. That was pretty weak. Get your Bibles out. All right, and go to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 7. The Lord has been talking to me a lot about these things. Um, So what, as I often say, what I share tonight, He is transacting in me, and um, and since we are the body, and we're a part of one another, then we share this, the truth of His Word so that we, like it talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, can grow up into the head, which is Christ. So in, in um, Genesis 2, verse 7, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says... Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. In the King James Version, it says, He became a living soul. 
In the New King James, it says he became a living being. So we have here um, God picking up and forming out of dust, dirt. Uh, I don't know. The outline of a man, I, I assume because he breathed into his nostrils. But the Hebrew word for dust is afar, and it means dry earth. And I've tried to put dry earth together, and when you do, it just kind of falls apart. But being God, he could take dry earth, and he could form a man. He formed the man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. The word for breathed is nafak in Hebrew, and it means to blow or to, to breathe, to, to, to actually force air is nafak. And you'll find in, flip over, keep your finger in Genesis 2, but flip over to John 20, 22, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 22. Jesus has risen. He's been resurrected. He um, uh, appears to his disciples. And in verse um, 22, he's there with his disciples and it says, then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That word there, he breathed, the Greek word is emphusao. That's the verb. The noun is emphysema, from which we get the word emphysema, which means to be inflated. So, Emphusao, he breathed on them. It's the only place in the New Testament that word occurs. It's the same word as the Greek or the Hebrew word in Hebrews 2 7, when he breathed into the nostrils and he, he, and he breathed what? He breathed the breath of life. Jesus breathed, and, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 2-7, when he breathed the breath of life, that breath is neshama, and it means the spirit, and the spirit of man. So what God does at this instant of creation is he breathes into the nostrils the breath, the spirit of high life. He breathes the spirit of life into this pile of dust and, and gives man a spirit. And when the spirit meets the dust, a living being is formed and, and forms the soul. Nefesh. Everywhere you see soul in the Old Testament in the Hebrew is nefesh. And so he became a living soul. 
This soul is the person of who Adam was. It, tip, it, it, it defined him as Adam. It's his mind, his will, and his emotions. So Adam was formed. He had a body that was made out of dirt. He had a spirit that was breathed into him by God, and it formed this living soul named Adam. Is that awesome? In John 20, 22, Jesus breathes the Spirit. The same thing. God breathed into the first Adam. The second Adam breathed into the disciples and breathed life into them. Because over in... um, Let me think here. John... I just thought of this. John 6, uh, 6, 6, 6, 6, 60, 6, 63. Jesus is speaking, and He says, the Spirit alone gives life. The Spirit gives life. Life. So when God breathed into the pile of dust, He imparted to man spirit and it gave him life high and he became a living soul. When Jesus breathed into the disciples, He gave life and it's called Zoe. It's eternal life. Okay, so... We have um, here in Genesis 2-7, we have Adam, and Adam is spirit, soul, and body. Now flip over to 1 Thessalonians 5-23, and Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica by the Spirit. And he says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. It is not coincidence that Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, put that order of spirit, soul, and body. Because when God created man, He created man to be living out of His spirit. His spirit was to rule His soul and His body. Look at... um, Genesis 2, well, let me, let me I'm, I'm going to read in verse 8. Then the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He placed the man He had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. And in the middle of the garden, He placed the tree of life, 
That word, the Hebrew word for life, the tree of life, is high. It's life. The same life that Adam received is the tree of high life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now flip over to verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. In other versions, it says, In the day that you eat this fruit, you will surely die. This is God's first commandment to the first man. He gave Adam one rule to follow. One rule. He said, you can eat of any tree in this garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then you know he formed Eve. When, when Adam saw Eve, he went ballistic. And he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken from man. So here's Eve. All right, now, everything changes, and we come to verse 3, or chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? So here's Satan has come on the scene. Everything was fine up until this point. By the way, God said, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But he didn't say they couldn't eat from the tree of life. That high life. So, the serpent's talking with Eve, and he questions her, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now remember, I said we're spirit, soul, and body. So, Satan is appealing to Eve's mind. She's going to start to reason now. He's shrewd. He goes directly to her rational reasoning mind, and he also appeals to the body, eating a fruit. And so Eve... Her response is, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Well, if I, if I go back up to what the commandment was to Adam, he said, you cannot eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
He didn't say anything about touching it. So already Eve is rationalizing and adding something to God's Word, and, and she's sparring with the devil at the mind, at the soul level. And he says, you won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She mentally assented to Satan's assertion that the fruit would be good, that she wouldn't die, that her eyes would be opened, and what else? She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So if Eve had truly been living from her spirit where she communed with God, the Creator, as soon as Satan had said that, she would have just definitely corrected him out of her spirit and said, no, we will obey God, and this is what God said. But she reasoned in her mind, and if you go to 1 John 2, 15 and 16, it talks about the fact that we are not to love the world or the things that are in the world. And, it's, and it talks about the fact that in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's exactly what is happening here. She... Uh, saw that the fruit looked delicious, the lust of the flesh. She wanted the wisdom it would give her, the pride of life, and the lust of the eye. She saw that the tree was beautiful. And so Satan snagged her because he went directly to her mind and it was just a short leap to snare her will. Because at this point, Eve is living out of her soul and her body. And, um, and so, what happened is, verse 7, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So, they did not physically die, did they? Adam lived for 930 years. But what happened is they died spiritually. Their spirit died and cut off the communion with God. And you see that when uh, it says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about the garden, so they hid from the Lord God 
among the trees. Broken relationship with the Creator. And, and that set up the whole course of, um, of man and having this uh, battle with the body and the soul. Because now man is consigned to living there. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. This is the picture of what was set up in the garden when Eve um, was deceived by Satan and she made the decision to disobey God and eat of the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So, verse 1, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, living out of the soul and the body, gratifying the desires of the flesh. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much that even though we were dead, because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So in the beginning, there was a tree that was the vehicle of death. And now, there is a tree that is foolishness to the world that is the means of eternal salvation. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. So, through the second Adam, we have been restored. Titus 3.5, He saved us not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus comes in and He breathes the Holy Spirit, our spirits are reborn. They are regenerated. Our spirit comes alive. And we are restored. And we are restored into the right relationship where we can now live in the Spirit and the Spirit rules our soul and our body. That is called walking in the Spirit. James 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is why Paul was saying, I pommel my body and I subdue it, lest after preaching to others I myself might be disqualified. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I 
Paul, the soulish Paul, the one who is known to everybody as Saul of Tarsus, or now Paul, I am, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Christ lives in his spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.17. 1 Corinthians 6.17, which by the way, just precedes where we started tonight about don't you understand that your body is a temple of the, the Holy Spirit? In verse 17, he says, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We are one in spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in our spirit and we, we commune, we, we, um, we have a conscience that has become so sensitive because we know the truth and because we feed upon the truth that just, just the slightest little change and we will know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And we have this intuition where the Holy Spirit will speak right into us, and He'll speak right into our spirit. It doesn't even go to our mind. It bypasses our mind. He speaks right into our spirit, and we know that we know that we know because He lives in us. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Church, we no longer have to live out of our soul. We don't have to live out of our emotions. We don't have to have the world uh, placate us and stimulate our emotions because our joy is in the Lord. So flip over to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to see these two different lives juxtaposed, stood up against one another. Verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Do you see that in the world? A world has, is feeding there. The world is, is embroiled in that. But, it says in verse 22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to His cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. That's how we should be living. Unfortunately, there are many, 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 many people who name themselves as Christians who do not have this teaching. They don't have this truth. And they are living solely out of their soul. They're trying. It's, it's what Paul talks about in the first part of chapter 5. 
It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, so be sure that you stay free. Don't go back to the soul. Don't go back and live uh, try to satisfy the law. Don't try to make yourself righteous. Christ has already made you righteous. So we can live in freedom. We can walk in freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We have been made, when we were united with Christ, when we were joined with Him, we became one Spirit with Him. So He lives in us. He is our life. And that's how we walk. So, my plea, my admonition, my urging to the church is to do what um, the psalmist says in Psalm uh, 139. At the very end, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. We, because Jesus is our high priest, and because of his death on the cross, the partition that kept us from the Holy of Holies was rent torn down, and the Holy of Holies was opened up so that we could have the confidence to go straight in to the Holy of Holies and to the very throne of God with full confidence, cleansed by the blood of Jesus from all guilt and shame. And we can go there and find grace and mercy. That's our privilege. So we should, we should be spending our time there. We should be walking in the Spirit. We should pommel our bodies. So when that, that quart of ice cream is crying out to you, with the serpent behind it saying, it's okay. It's just a quart. It's good. It's sweet. And so our body says, yes, yes, bring it on. And we can say, because we're living out of the Spirit, oh, oh, I can have just another chocolate chip cookie. And then I think I'll have another chocolate chip cookie. So I'm talking about the body, aren't I? And I'm talking about the things I talked about last time. But we don't have to live that way. We have all the power and all the means to walk in the Spirit. We have been set free. We have the privilege and the honor of listening to the Holy Spirit every day as He speaks to us. Jesus' admonition to the church in Revelation, when in the letters to the church, and almost at the end of almost every letter, it says, let those who have ears to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. The only way that you can hear that is to walk in the Spirit, to live your life in the Spirit, to let Jesus live His life in you 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says we have the mind of Christ. So Jesus is living in us. We have his mind. We have his wisdom. We have his power. We have his grace. He said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. It's always sufficient. That's the way we can walk. Amen? So, do Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Just go before the Lord and say, Father God, I heard your word tonight. Now what do I do about it? And we'll see what he does. Because we'll see more power. We'll see signs and wonders and miracles. Because that's the way we walk. Amen. Okay. Well, I'll pray for us in a moment. But first of all, let's return what the Lord has given to us back to Him. So, Bill, tithes and offerings. So, Father, I thank You for what You've done for us. I thank You that, um, that everything comes from You. You owned a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is yours. You made it all. You spoke it into existence. And so everything that we have, we are going to be good stewards of. And so now, Father, we just give out of the abundance that you have showered on us, we give back to you uh, as um, our reasonable service. We present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You. And we ask You, Father God, to bless this mightily that You may be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, this is Robert Richards, and you're listening to The Waterhole, our weekly broadcast, which is now available on iTunes and all major podcast platforms. You can also watch the weekly video broadcast on our YouTube channel. Links in the description. I pray this has been a blessing to you. And if you've enjoyed this message, please share this with a friend. God bless you. And remember, no matter where you are and what you've done, Jesus loves you.